Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hey, it's Rebecca. We have a special perk for our listeners who use the TuneIn app. Starting this week, you can hear our next episode early on Fridays on TuneIn. That's right. Episodes will be available four days early, again, starting this Friday, then every Friday through the end of the year, only on TuneIn. Now, I hope you'll enjoy this week's No Limits. What I wanted to do, even if it sounded crazy to them at the time, it just took one person to believe in it enough to tell another person who had some power, some ability, some you know access to call me to get the wheels turning. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's show, it's a No Limits So Money podcast crossover featuring my dear friend, a total rock star, host of the fabulous So Money podcast, Farnoosh Tarabi. Farnoosh Tarabi, welcome to No Limits. Rebecca! <laughs> I'm so, I'm such a fan of this show. Like, oh being here gosh. is super surreal. I don't know what we're going to talk about. You'll have to make me sound really interesting. You are absolutely fascinating. You are someone I have admired for many years now. You and I go so far back, which we're going to get into in a minute. But we're I just so wanna, old. Let's not even no. go there. I can't, and I can't think about that. But... You're a financial journalist, author, television personality, a personal finance expert and advisor, and my favorite, you are the host of the So Money Podcast. Thank you, which you were one of my, my very first guests, helped kick us off. So uh, the feeling is mutual. I'm, I'm a big, I have so much adoration for you. Mm, by the way, people have been requesting you, Farnoosh. No joke. Who's requesting No me? Limits listeners have been no requesting way. Well, Farnoosh. No Limits for- Nation. <laughs> I love you. Thank you so much. <laughs> you might have just coined something there for us. I don't Someone know. Someone just said that for me. Sh- Someone said So Money Nation the other day, and I'm like, why haven't I thought of saying, addressing my audience like that? It sounds very dictatorial, but I like it. <laughs> it reminds me. I, so Money Nation. This is so, I I'm, I don't like the whole name droppy thing, but Kenny Chesney mm-hmm. interviewed him a few years ago. He's the No Shoes Nation. So I feel like No <laughs> Limits, I almost shoes? feel... He doesn't wear shoes? Well, he he, he in, encourages people to live like a free lifestyle, mm. which is like the no shoes thing. So, hmm. Well, um, <laughs> Deepak Chopra, is one of his, uh, I think it's one of his pillars to well-being is um, being as close to the earth as possible. So he says like, you know, when you have, when you're up in the air for six hours and you have jet lag, that's not, that's because you're not, your body's really not supposed to be going through that, that you're really supposed to be barefoot and running on the beach in the grass. And when you do more of that, you it's like another pillar like feeding yourself healthy food and getting enough sleep it's up there as far as how important it is for your well-being so 
little Deepak Chopraism. Is there something you do after the long flight then to get closer? Oh, so if yes, so you could buy one of his technologies that he's created, (laughs) but you could do a foot rub. You can just, you know, take your shoes off and like go in your backyard and and do some cartwheels, I guess. But you you ever do that, Farnoosh? No, I live in Brooklyn. What what are you talking about? Backyard. (laughs) <laughs> you go out on the sidewalk, do some somersaults. Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, I'm running after my kids, maybe. Yeah, right. Mother of two. Mm-hmm. You have a little one who was just born, Colette, baby Colette. She's five months, and I have Evan, who's three and three months, going on, you know, fourteen. Wow. Sorry, three years. Did I say three months? <laughs> that would have been some weird delivery. Some weird, Guys, she's years. really good at math. Yeah, she can. She's going to fix everything. <laughs> three years going on uh, much older. But yeah, it's it's a lot of... One child is an accessory. Two is completely changes your whole life. Um, you, you are tested beyond your limits. And uh, every day is, is, is different and challenging in its own way. I want to get to all of that. <laughs> We're going to go back. But it's to totally the start. worth it. Everyone should have kids. No, maybe not everybody. We're going to get to that. I want to go back to the beginning. So you grew up in Massachusetts. Yeah, you did your homework. Worcester. 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 How do you like them apples? I know, right? Yeah. Well, I never grew up with a Boston or Worcester accent. I think because my parents were immigrants and we and I actually grew up dual language, multi like bilingual um English was not my first language, believe it or not. My mom and I used to joke that, you know, she was 19 when she had me. We would watch Sesame Street together to kind of learn our ABCs. And, I, I you know, it, it all worked out. But, uh, yeah, Worcester, Massachusetts. Your parents from Iran. From Iran. Immigrated here in the 1970s. In, like, right, I would say, like, 79, 80. I was born in 80. Um, my dad was getting his Ph.D. here. Thought their plan was always to move back to Iran. But... You know, uh, politically, it was not attractive, inviting for them. So luckily, he had someone here in the States that granted him a work visa and one where a work visa turned into citizenship. And, you know, we're very I mean, he will always say to me growing up, you've no idea how lucky we all are, because it Mm. was just literally one person deciding I'm going to grant you a worker, a work visa. Uh, He didn't have to. But um, the randomness of that people can change people's lives. One person can change your life. This person changed our lives. And, um, you know, he's still someone that we we just talk about all the time, literally changed our lives uh, for the better. How did you think about being the child of immigrant? I mean, was it something I, I have done a little research, so I know your name. You were playing around as a kid with different names. Super self-conscious about being different as a kid. I didn't like being different. I didn't like that my parents would speak in another language to me in front of my friends. I would get so embarrassed. I don't think – I don't – I think that was – I don't blame them. I think it was just something in my head. Like for some reason, I – and I don't think I don't think it's just being a kid and wanting to be the same because I think that some kids grow up totally proud and appreciative and excited about their their differences and they don't even think twice about speaking in Italian or French in front of their friends with their parents. But I think because it was the it was a Middle Eastern thing and like people just in my growing up in Worcester, Massachusetts, you know, most people were Irish Catholic. Uh, Christianity was the number one religion. Um, I didn't even know. It's funny enough, I moved to Philly years later where um, everyone in my public school was Jewish. Who knew? Like, I just, I, I was very different from my friends growing up in Worcester, Massachusetts. I looked different. I dressed different. I 
you know, we ate different things. I remember my mom would pack my lunch and, you know, she would pack me a bologna sandwich with parsley in it. <laughs> she put parsley <laughs> in everything. And my friends would be like, is that grass? You're so weird. And, you know, that's – Kids are just We ridiculous. laugh about it now, but they're ridiculous. Yeah. And I would go home crying. I'm like, why did you put parsley in my, sa- in my sandwich? It's yeah. like I don't even know how to – they don't – you know, the, so – my dad always made peanut butter sandwiches with lettuce in them when I was a kid. And I actually kind of like them still. But the whole school lunch thing, it's amazing how political that can get. Like if you're the kid with the tuna sandwich, every kid in class is oh. like, oh, what's that smell? That's so weird. No. She would, like, you know, she. It no was kudos hu- for you. No. And um, yeah, so I just, I really didn't like being different. I remember one time my um, in third grade, we had to go around the room and tell everybody where our uh, grandparents were from or like, you know, assuming not everybody was like a Native American, like where was, where's your origin? And it got to me and I froze. I didn't want to say Iran. I just, nobody knew what their middle, nobody could put Iran on a map. I just felt like we never talked about the Middle East in school. We always talked about Europe and we talked about Africa and like Mexico and Canada. Like the Middle East was not an area of, of interest or exploration when I was growing up in school. And so I felt like it was maybe taboo or something like we sh- I shouldn't tell anyone that I'm from Iran they're going to think that I'm um I don't know what I thought they would think I was so f- afraid of the unknown and you know and I did when we got older in like middle school I definitely had kids saying like go back to your country you know it's stupid things like that and at that point I was smart enough to know like this person's ignorant but uh it didn't really start it to still hurts, it though. still hurts and I think so it was hard, but I think I'm so thankful for the differences. The differences make us who we are. And, and even though I had issues with it, personal struggles, I think um, you do learn to appreciate it. The older you get, we uh, start to travel. You start to – we moved around a lot too. So we didn't always live in the you – know, in Worcester, we moved to Philly, which was a lot more diverse. And then, of course, you go to college. And my high school was super diverse. So um, – you know, over time, people started to people started to appreciate who I was and how different I was, and that was a good thing. And so, mm-hmm. I internalized that as being special. And on, you know, you shouldn't wait for someone else to think you're special to think you're special, but that helps when you're growing up and you just want to assimilate. And when it's hard to, you are who you are. And when people start to notice and appreciate that and think it's cool that you speak Farsi and wow, you know, oh, I I had a you know, people would say. Persian food's so delicious, I'm, you know. Or I would I studied abroad in Paris. I remember, and um, my my French mom. We used to call our French, um, you know, where we would stay, like our French parents. She, oh, we used to travel to Iran. It's such a beautiful country, and I'd be like, wow, you know. And uh, thanks to just really traveling and um, being exposed to people who were open-minded eventually, I got to really also accept who I was and appreciate it. I actually wrote my college essay about I, how I always hated my name, uh, but I think it was around 14 or 15, I really started to appreciate it. But really that journey of coming to terms with your identity and your my name being so different, it's like, how could I not be singled out every time there was roll call in school? When there was a substitute teacher, I would just hide under my desk. I was like, she's going to get to me. And everyone in my class was like Ashley and Mark and Samantha and Jesse. And then it was far, uh, French, Francine. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I just... The, you know, your stomach just yes. drops. And that was that was my experience with my name for many years. Uh, it's so funny how much 
of your identity and and what you think about your identity, especially as a kid, can be tied to your name. Because we had Randy Zuckerberg here a couple of episodes ago, and she talked about the fact that her name started with a Z. So she was just intent. She was always the last kid called on in class. So she was just intent on finding a partner in life who had a name that started with one of the earlier letters (laughs) in the alphabet. Um, But I think you touched on something that I hear so much now, this idea of the strength of being the outsider. And, And maybe some of it comes from the fact that you're a natural observer because you are or whether you are an, an outsider or you feel like an outsider, you're sort of surveying the land. You're trying to figure out your place in it. You're trying to understand how and why people are behaving in the ways that they are. And those observations can be incredibly valuable in in all different facets of life. I, I think you're spot on. I think that... You know, I'm not I wasn't conscious of this growing up, but I think, yes, definitely looking back at my experiences, being forced into situations, again, moving a lot, always being the new kid, always being the new and different kid. Um, but you're also at a vulnerable age. So you want to assimilate. That requires a lot of observation, learning, um, being really introspective. And I think that all fed to ultimately me in my career today as a journalist, I do that all the time. It's, it's like part of the job, being a good listener, being really um, just ha- having empathy too. You know, I grew up being picked on and being different. And also in some cases, wherever we move, sometimes, you know, there's a lot of diversity or no diversity. And so uh, I started to really, at a very early age, I, I matured very quickly, I think. Mm-hmm. I was also an only child. So for many years. Um, my brother was born when I was 11, but for 10 years, all I wanted was a sibling. But I didn't, you know, I felt like I was forced to grow up a little bit faster than my peers. And I think that brought with it, I think there were some gifts in that, you know, there was definitely, uh, there was more pro than con to that, looking back. So you go to Penn State, you study international business. Yes. You graduate $30,000 in debt. 22 years old, you're making $18 an hour. Mm-hmm. This is your famous start. It's the Unfortunately, yeah. it's where so many well, <laughs> college graduates find themselves. And I actually, between that, I went to grad school. And, you know, when you think you're going to go to grad school and you get a master's, you should be able to earn more. And I was not. I was earning $18 an hour and I had debt from graduate school. I credit So this was actually debt. after you got your MS in journalism. Yes. Okay. So you you literally got two degrees, mm-hmm. including your MS in journalism right. from Columbia. Mm-hmm. Then you're $30,000 in I'm debt, $30, debt and still making 18 bucks an hour. Yes. Before taxes. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I don't do even want to ask so, what that is after taxes. Basically nothing. Yeah. Um, so when I remember one of the things, I was at Money Magazine and one of the things that Money would provide its employees was if you stayed after like 6 or 7 p.m., you got free dinner and a cab ride home. So I was always the last <laughs> to leave. And that's how I fed myself and got myself from point A to point B. Yeah. So I learned very on, this is pre, you know, mobile apps and the robust internet that we know of today where you can basically hop on and maybe find a side gig or a side hustle. I I had to piece together many revenue streams, not just that one Money Magazine paycheck. I was babysitting. I was pet sitting. I was freelance writing. I was not – I was living in New York, but that's also very dangerous too because just – I feel like there's like a tax just when you leave your apartment. You know, there's like – you're going to come back home with at least $20 gone from your wallet, whether it's because you – 
took a cab or you bought a banana or you, you know, like there's always something that will force you to spend throughout the day. And so I would go home on the bus and go to my parents' house and like stock up on toilet paper and clementines and whatever else I could like fit into a brown paper bag. Got back on the Greyhound, went back to New York. And, you know, that's how I avoided getting further into debt. But that too, that that survival tactic that I, I basically was out of, you know, I didn't, it was a necessity. I had to make money. Um, it started as a necessity. Then it became, I saw the opportunities in that, you know, when you're out there always looking for the next hustle or making more money, you're meeting people, you're testing your own skill sets, you're decide, you're learning what you hate to do, what you love to do. And things take on a life of their own. And so one of the things that I was doing on the side was writing more um, and I had a little column in this free paper in New York called AM New York. They paid me a little bit of money, but it was really more for – it was the money and it was also – I felt – Clips and all clips that Clips and, stuff. yeah, building your career. That basically helped to build my platform to then sell a book uh, about personal finance in your 20s. And it was very biographical, but also um, the, the columns really fed the book. And that really – was like the next step in my career. And I, I credit that for being kind of the stepping stone for everything else, the book. So the book was You're So Money, Live Rich Even When You're Not. Right. 2008, that's when you published it. Right before book. the, right as the market, just as the sky is falling and the book's coming out. <laughs> How did you get that first book deal? Okay, so I was working at New York One News, still around. It's a wonderful station in New York City, 24-hour cable network. I was working as a business producer, I was freelance writing on the side. The, the 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 money there was not so great either, so I was continuing to freelance and continuing to write. And a, a colleague of mine at the at the AM New York paper had a relationship column. A guy, he's like, "Furnish, you just got a book deal from my, <laughs> my my column, my love column." I'm like, "You got a book deal from your from this column in AM New York?" It's not even like the I mean, like I can get it if you're like writing for Cosmo or the New York Times. That's attractive. You get a book deal, but he got a book deal. And I was like, "Hmm." I want a book deal. That sounds really. <laughs> I want, this I want guy one too. can get a book yeah, deal. I want one too. But you know, truthfully, I also remembered working under Jean Chatsky at the at Money Magazine at the time. Who you know, for me is like she is uh, just such a uh, my shiro and has. I really feel like she paved the way for so many other yes. personal brands, especially in money, personal finance space, to exist. Jean Chatsky, by the way, who's now a Today Show contributor. She's been the NBC Today Show financial editor for like 15 plus years. Um, she's written multiple best-selling books. She's a highly sought-after speaker. She's on TV all the time. I mean, she's phenomenal. And I feel you know I had the opportunity to work under her and really observe how she, as a journalist, was able to really be entrepreneurial as well. And that, for me, was eye-opening and groundbreaking because even had I I'd gone to graduate school for journalism, but even there they teach you, you know, the one path. Like you just do right. the one thing. You become the radio host. They say go to um, XYZ town, start in that market, move your way up. There's a very yeah. And and I didn't get up. I didn't get into this that way. You didn't get into this. No, that way. I was like. I'm not moving to Bumblebee, Tennessee, you know, I'm making $8 a, a day. Which is not to say it's impossible to do that, but there are multiple pathways. These days, to this. yeah. Yes. And at the time, too, this was 2003, like 
uh, the, the path was changing. There wasn't just a one way to do things. And I feel like this, the school was a little bit behind the, the times in teaching us uh, the kind of new way to approach the, the the industry and the career. People were going to freelance and we were like, oh, good luck with that, you know, <laughs> and they were ahead of the curve. Um, so I had that context. I was like, oh, you know, if you write a book – it can it can really build your platform. It's your own intellectual property. You own it. You can get fired, and no one can. And you still have that. You're you're an expert, and I knew that that was something that was worth exploring. So anyway, that that, that all planted the seed. But it's now it's like, well, where do you go from here? Exactly. I don't have. I have a literary. I need a literary agent. I need an idea. And how old are you at at this time? I'm 25. 25. Okay. <laughs> so 25 determined to write your first book. Yeah, I'm gonna, it's going to happen. So. Part of my job at the at the station was I was a producer, so I interviewed a lot of authors, and realized I have such a resource here. I could interview these people for work, but I could also, as I'm walking them to the elevators and or booking their, you know, do, talking to them on the phone in preparation for the segment, I'm going to ask them, "How did you get your book deal? How, what does it take to write a book?" Just out of curiosity, I'm not looking for anyone to help me do anything. I just want to learn. So I went through a learning stage of just reaching out to people who were already coming to me. And it took one person who, after talking to her, she said, uh, do you want to write a book? And I said, actually, I'm thinking about it. You know, uh, she said, well, you know what? Let me get, I'll tell my literary agent about you. And, um, and I said, okay, well, thank you so much. Goodbye. And I never, I didn't even like, I don't even remember who this person was. It was, I went on vacation. I came back. There was a voicemail at work. A literary agent had called and said, my client told me about you. I think you're very interesting being that you are, in, you know, at your demographic, a young woman in New York City. Um, you cover finances for a, a news station. I think that being that you work in media, you must have some relationships. I think, you know, we could probably work on your platform, but I'm curious to go over ideas with you. I mean, literally, it was just putting my ideas out there, telling people what I wanted to do. No expectations, and I don't know what you call it—the secret, the universe, the the vibration. <laughs> like, just you know, I think that a lot of people sometimes are afraid to tell people what they want. Mm-hmm. First, admitting to yourself what you want, but then to tell others, you hold yourself accountable to that, and it can be scary. So, but you know, I I didn't care. I just told people what I wanted to do, even if it sounded crazy to them at the time. It just took one person to believe in it enough to tell another person who had some. Some power, some ability, some you know access to call me to get the wheels turning. I didn't end up working with this agent, but she inspired me. She put in me a belief that I didn't have that I could actually do this. Right? I had like somebody legit from the industry calling me, and I said, you know what? If I can't stop, I got to keep going. I got to keep going. So I wrote a proposal that summer. It ended up being uh, something along the lines of how to you know live it up. Start with what you know. I always learned from my English teacher in 11th grade. Don't write something that you, you know, even if it fascinates you, like start with what you know. Yeah. And what I knew was I'm 26 years old at the time now living in New York City. I'm not bankrupt yet. So <laughs> something must be working. Um, so let me write about that and, you know, pull anecdotes from friends. And as a, again, as a journalist in, in the money space, it wasn't, um, so difficult to just pick up the phone and call people and get them to talk to me about how to do X, Y, and Z and manage money. And so I, um, all the while I changed jobs. I now am working at the street.com as their financial correspondent on their video network. And I've got this book proposal now in my hand and, uh, I don't know what to do with it, but I, 
I have a friend <laughs> who has written books, and I and we have lunch one day, and I say to him, you know, I um I I have this book proposal. He goes, well, you know what? Let me talk to my agent about it. Send me the proposal. Let's see what he thinks. And he liked it. Jeremy Katz, if you're out there listening, thank you for taking me on as your, you know, a client. I had nothing going for me then except for a job and a will. And he took me on. But he said, you know what? You're working at thestreet.com. Jim Cramer is the co-founder of thestreet.com. Jim Cramer, CNBC's Mad Money. CNBC's Mad Money. What will really sell this proposal and he's like, I'm, pro- I'm pretty confident we can get meetings, but we'll, we'll really seal the deal for you and maybe get us some bidding wars is if he gets behind this mm. and he reads this proposal and will write a letter and, and endorse it and say, you know, I support this and Farnoosh, we hired her. We love her. I want to help her market this. So I was like, don't make me do this. Don't make me go ask this oh, man. Yeah. I just started working here. Right. I'm no, like, I haven't even met him, you know, and like to go in for this big ask. So yeah, I was really this really tested my limits here. So I went to my editor in chief and I said, um, "I've got this book proposal, and my my agent really thinks it'd be helpful if Jim would read it." And you know what? I said truthfully, if this book gets done, which I hope it will, I really hope that I can carry the Street.com flag everywhere I go as I promote this book, and I think it'll help traffic to our site. Like I want it to be a win-win. This is not just about me and. Sure, passion. you made it. You, you put yeah. something in it for them, and that was the truth. That was the, a smart. The cover of exactly. the book was going to say the street.com correspondent. Whenever I did press, it would say Farnoosh, author of, but street.com correspondent. So they got it. Thankfully, they were. I, I'm very grateful that these employers got it. He's like, you know what? I'll show it to Jim. We'll see what he says. Weeks go by. A month goes by. Now it's Thanksgiving. I'm like, he hated it. I don't, you know. <laughs> and so um, I, I kind of like bashfully went up to my editor-in-chief I said did you happen to get feedback from Jim oh oh I actually forgot let me let me call him let me let me talk to him tomorrow I of gave it to him he but forgot. he just forgot next day he comes he goes Jim loved the proposal he thinks it's the best thing since literally he thinks it's the best thing since sliced bread he'll do whatever you want Yay! what I what mean, did you think I, I oh gosh I I remember that moment I ran back to my desk I Who'd started, you call? I called. I called Jeremy. I I said Jeremy. He said literally, he'll do whatever I want. He goes, I'm gonna write the letter. I'm gonna write the letter that he'll read. That he'll he'll sign. And the letter was like, <laughs> you know, um, I support. I love this book. It serves an under uh, an underserved market. I'm. He wrote the book. Not only did he write the foreword, he wrote the investing chapter. Wow, huge, and absolutely huge. The book went to auction. Um, I, it was a it was a big deal for me. I paid off all my student loans, Rebecca, with this yeah! with this uh, advance. And you know, I could have gone and bought like a Cartier watch or something, but I was like, nope, I'm just gonna keep this in the bank. I paid off my student loans and I had some left over. I was like, I'm just gonna because it's really easy to spend money a lump sum. It's yeah. really easy to be like, I'm gonna buy this bag and this shoe, and I'm gonna take my friends out, and like, there's so many pent up things that I wanted to do that I could never do in my early 20s, like even just going and like buying that dress that wasn't on sale, mm-hmm. you know, but I, but for suddenly here's a realization, a so money realization I had very early on is like, when you don't have any money, you want everything. When you have money, you want less. I feel that way. Like you realize what you wanted. You want to conserve. You want to conserve it. You want to save it because you realize how hard it was to get that money not that I wasn't working hard and making my $18 an hour, but um, you spend so much of your time wanting. And when you finally have the money to work with it, for me personally, I don't know, something changed, something clicked. I was like, 
No, no, no. The, like, I I need to be smart with this money. I need to, I, I'm going to treat myself, yes, but I'm really mostly, 90% of it is going to go towards the boring and smart things. Like, it's not going to go towards blowing it. And I don't, actually, I don't really care for that bag anymore. I don't really want to go to that restaurant. I just, I want to be... I want to, I like seeing the balance. I like seeing it in my bank account. There's actually some something really inexplicably amazing about that. And so at least there's that to look forward to. You know, I think people think as soon as I make that win that lottery or make more money, I can afford all these things and I'll be happier. But you may realize you get there and you don't actually want those things cuz you know what? They don't make you happy. And that's that's a good place to be in. Totally agree. And I want to get to your speech at Penn State because I think there's a lot of kernels of wisdom there, too. Just quickly on the book business, because now you've been through this multiple times. You have how many books do you have at this point? Three books. Three books at this point. You have a workshop that teaches people about how to write books and how to get into the book industry. How to leverage them. to Basically, it's my career in two days in a workshop. Uh, One of the questions I've the biggest question I've been getting in the last year. How did you become you? It's not like, how do I get out of debt? How do I save more? How do I make more? It's like, how did you become you? We're in a very amazing time in our career history as America. Like Everybody wants to do that side hustle, become mm-hmm. their own brand, become an entrepreneur in, in their own way. And uh, yeah, whenever I, tr- I speak, inevitably somebody will ask this question, how did you become you? Where'd you get your start? How did you leverage your books? So I was like, maybe there's something to be taught that's that I can systematize and I can teach and I can um, charge. (laughs) Well, is there a ballpark figure for the kind of advance that you might expect on your first book if you're starting from not being a known author? And then also, what kind of money can you expect from actually sales of the book? And my understanding, I've never written one, but I know people who have, is that really where you make money, and I'm doing the quotation marks, is on the speaking that comes after the book. That's been my experience. And I I won't pretend and say that I know how to become a New York Times best seller that's never happened to me i'm not going to say i've sold a million copies that's never happened to me i mean selling books is very difficult i'll be the yeah. first to admit my books don't sell like 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 crazy you know um i wish they did but i think that in money in the money space it can be difficult uh I think diet books do really well, you know, like also the books, <laughs> right? I, a diet like, book. I'll tell you the last book I wrote when she makes more, we mm-hmm. had such high expectations for it. It did well, not as well as we thought, I think because the topic still is very sensitive. People also don't know. Maybe they, the topic they, is a woman making female more. breadwinners and the complexities and how to kind of navigate your relationship. Uh, the Kindle did very well. The book, I think people just don't want to like have a book open that's kind of very revealing, you know, like when she makes more, it's like, oh, really? Is that you? And people, because even in researching the book and reporting it, people didn't want to talk about the, the fact that they made more than their husband. So it was, I feel like it's a, kind of one of those slow burn books, like it continues to sell, but it's, it wasn't this like, gotta have. Um, but it has been a great platform for me to get out there and talk more about the issues that I care about and do speaking. And, um, you know, for me, book writing, I've been very fortunate and that I have even gotten three deals, three very separate deals. But every time, you know, it's important for me to I market it very well. It gets press. It gets acclaim. It gets me. Uh, it builds the brand. It gets me speaking. I make money, but maybe not from. I get advances, but I don't get residuals because sometimes the advance doesn't. The, 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 so the publisher basically needs to make back your advance first, and then you start making like a dollar per book. 
Um, that doesn't that happens for very few authors. And so what is the is there a traditional advance like a, a like a I would introductory say, level advance? Sure. That people, if, if anyone out there is listening. if anyone's interested, I mean, I've heard now people, of course, self-publish. Uh, but I would say if you're if you have no platform and you but you have a great idea and you have um, a great potential marketing plan, you could get you know, 15 to thirty five thousand dollars, perhaps with a smaller publisher. If you have a platform, are regularly seen on TV, have a very well-read blog, uh, that's the thing. The most important part of your book proposal is your marketing plan, sadly. It's not necessarily how great your idea is. The, how are you going to get the word out? How are you going to get the word out? Are people, are people going to buy this book? If you have a big list of people that are conditioned to buy from you, you, you sell them pencils and courses and they buy everything and they are your biggest fans and you come out with a book and they'll, be, they'll buy 10 that's that is music to a publisher's ears. You will get a six figure deal. Hmm. You'll definitely get a six figure deal because it's all it's like baked in. You know, it's like you just do the math. If um, you have your devotees, you, you are will, in a good place. You will do a great place from a book standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I find that the people who are getting the best book deals right now are people you've never heard of potentially, but they're huge online influencers. So, you know, in every they have their community have and their in community. their community people know them very well, but right. beyond that. It's the guy who it's the doggist on Instagram who only <laughs> takes photos of dogs and he's got over, you know, a million followers on Instagram. He is getting a book deal. Um it's the chef who's got the million subscribers on YouTube for his or her, you know, 5-minute cooking clips getting a six-figure book deal. Um it's the it's the person who Literally internet famous people, you know, that get recognized. I got recognized the other day for my Yahoo series that I ended like three years ago. This guy's like, awesome. he's like, do I know you? And I mean, I don't know. Do we know who <laughs> could be from anywhere? And so I said, uh, I just kind of stared at him and he goes, did you work at Yahoo? And I said, didn't you, did we work together? And he goes, no, <laughs> but I watched your videos. <laughs> That's so cool. The internet. Yeah. Did you love hearing that? I love it. I love it. I love knowing that people are consuming my stuff, you know, and that like it's not just going into the ether. Right. You never it, know. Well, I mean, you do know. There's data to back it yeah, up. But like but that, you, it was memorable. Right. Exactly. That's a wonderful <laughs> thing. So I want to talk a little bit about the fact that you have your hands in so many different places. Like you're incredibly diversified. And how do you manage all of that? Well, I don't know. It's not like I sit at home and I have like a system and I I use Google. I use Google Calendar. I have an assistant who helps me with scheduling and writing. Is your assistant full-time? She was. We're, she's part-time now. Um, yeah, so I have an assistant who helps with like the podcast has a lot of um, housekeeping, as you know. You know, it's like posting the podcast. I have editors overseas who do it within like 24 hours. They're wonderful. They do transcripts. It's it's great. So I have sort of – I have a kind of a network of people that support different things. So I have podcast editors. I have my assistant who helps with a lot of the day-to-day sort of, you know, scheduling and um, housekeeping of the podcast and the website and – or, you know, kind of organizing things, being my go-between uh, communicator. I have a, a talent agent who sets meetings up for me. We all, they all can access my Google Calendar. Gosh, I have an amazing husband, too. That's important. Very. I have a lot of support at home. A partner. That's, I would say that's 90% of it is having the support at home. So when I'm away from home, I don't feel like 
I'm in two places at once. You know, I can be doing my job and then I get home and I can be mom and wife and I don't have to, I'm not, of course, like emails come up and work comes up unexpectedly. But, um, you know, I'm tethered to my kids' schedules right now when I'm home. Like between five and eight, it's like dinner, bath, bedtime. Like I can't, I'm I'm offline. So you make that happen. It has to happen. Every day. It has to, yeah. I mean, that has to happen so that they can sleep. And I can sleep and then I can rinse and repeat, you know, like it's very important, certain elements, especially at that, this stage in their lives, having the continuity and the re- repetition, it's comforting for them. You know, my daughter knows the smell of her bath soap and knows <laughs> that that is bedtime. If she doesn't get that bath soap, it's maybe it's just in my head. But I do think that that ritual, it signals to her like we're not talking. So she smells it and she's like, oh. Yes, it's time to unwind. I'm going to get my four ounces of milk after this. And she doesn't complain. She goes right to sleep. And I've trained her. <laughs> I have to. You got to get these like you got to get these things in place. And I'm not saying I wasn't up last night because I was because she woke up at 4:30. How and, much do you sleep on a given night? Um, you know, some nights it's four hours. Some nights it's eight hours. This morning I overslept by accident because I was up between four and. 3.30 and 5 with my daughter who normally sleeps through the night. But even if she sleeps through the night, my son might wake up at 6 a.m. I'm not a morning person at all. And yet you do morning TV all the time. I I guess. I mean, it's like I used to worry, though, that if I, I used to do morning TV when I didn't have kids and I it was a struggle <laughs> and I would. I would I would be so scared about having the kids. And like, how am I ever going to do morning TV when I have kids? And it just works out. You just, you just, because by then you figured out your morning routine. You know how to be comfortable on camera. Like I can, I can practice whatever it is. I can study and can research whatever I need. Like literally like an hour before I go right. on the air. Like I know it's just two minutes for a new and it's a conversation. You don't have to be an encyclopedia when you're on. Well, plus you've now been doing this for exactly. so many years so, where it's all inside. Like all the information you can basically draw on it. It's somewhere in your history right, at this right. point. It's in your DNA. Right. Yeah. So it's like a muscle, you know, you flex it yeah. for so many years. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't even know how we got on this topic, but it's it, it it's such a great place to be in. But it's also a, a lie. I would be lying if I said if it's not very difficult. I have to outsource a lot of things. I have a wonderful nanny. I have a great husband. I have kids who behave some of the time you know that helps <laughs> my son he's three it's help um and yeah I have, I have support at work but I also when I became a mom I got really good at saying no to, to certain things like I don't do things for free unless it's really meaningful to me and it's convenient it's interesting because you don't strike me as a rigid person like, I, I'm not a rigid person. I don't think of you as a rigid person. But you do have to set those boundaries. And sometimes you have to even think of them in advance and define them mm-hmm. prior to the request coming in. Because everything can be alluring in its own way. Like, of everything course. can sound like a great opportunity in its own way. And we're, I'm you, like you, you want to just do stuff. It's cool to do stuff. But you also know there's a limitation on your body and your ability to actually enjoy things. Like, yeah. if you're exhausted... You're not really going to enjoy that if you're feeling guilt about your children or your husband and not being a part of their life. You're not going to enjoy it in the same mm-hmm. way. I think it's your responsibility to figure out 
first and foremost, when you before you get to a system or like hiring or outsourcing, you have to f- really be clear on what makes you happy. Where do you source right. your happiness? For me, I know, and I learned this. I learned this. I mean, it comes up if I don't exercise for like a week, I am not a nice person to be around. I don't like myself. I. And that gets projected. And my husband knows this by now. And so, you know, I'm like, I just need me time. I need to build in that workout. When I, after I had my daughter and I was ready to get back into my workout routine, every, you know, I would just, I would have, I think it was like, I had an 8.30 workout. So from 8 to 10, nothing. And it was non-negotiable. Right. I'm not going to any meetings. Okay, if GMA wants me to have, I, mean, I will, of course. But, you know, for things that don't, couldn't could be rescheduled or could, didn't have to be between 8 and 10 a.m., I'm not doing it. I need this time for me because I know that if I'm in a good mood, things fall in place. Life is better. Um, and and so that's just one example. And I heard someone yesterday tell me, like, they, they actually schedule on their schedule me time. Mm. Even if you're doing nothing, even mm-hmm. if it's just a nap, you're just watching Netflix, you're getting your nails done, you're staring at a paint drying. Like, I don't know what you're, I don't care what you're doing. You're just doing something that is not, um, that's effortless and can allow you to unwind and however is best for you. Schedule it just like you schedule your appointments for work and your kids' things. Do this for yourself. And Tori Johnson actually of ABC taught me something. Love Tori. Yeah. She was on my podcast and she I said, How do you, because she's also everywhere. I go, How do you just, how do you prioritize? what gets done, your to-do list. She goes, truthfully, at this stage in my career and where in my life, like I start with the things that have the biggest ROI. You know, if I do this, and that may be money, that may be a relationship building thing. Like it doesn't always have to be about the money, but it, you have to sort of know what your time is worth and what your, pro- what, so therefore what, the, what are the worthy projects and the worthy things to be spending your time on. Um, Usually it is a, a, a helps if it's a monetary thing. Like that's easy math. Like if I do this, this is going to be money in my bank account. So I need to do this first. If I don't do it, it's money out of my bank account. That's an obvious uh, distinction. But sometimes it's like I want to go to this lunch because I'm going to meet this person. I really want to get to know them. I've, I've been, I'm a fan. I want to like help them and build a relationship because in my life, in my experience, I know relationships are everything. And um, giving is everything. Being being able to show up for things sometimes is everything. And you don't even know what it's going to return. And and it's not even the point in the beginning. But it's always it's always great energy to put out there. In your Penn State commencement address, which was this year, this year was my coming out party after having Colette. I was like, I need to. Just a couple of months after I had her, and I just it was great timing because I got to like actually get dressed and go and do something. Well, it's awesome that you got to go back. Congratulations. That is a huge honor to be able to do that. You said success is for amateurs. Mm-hmm. I, I really, that resonates with me a lot. Even though we talk about success here and how to be successful in all of those things, the points that you made were dead on, in my opinion. Thank you. And I can't take all the credit. Like Tony Robbins is a big um, inspiration for me. And he coined the term, you know, um, success without fulfillment is failure. Mm-hmm. It was one of the first things I ever read of his, like a statement, a quote, and I just knew I couldn't stop consuming his stuff. And it's true because I think for, and I'll use myself as an example. Growing up, it's like success is the thing. You want to be successful. What does that mean? For me, it meant just 
finding other success air quotes, successful people, re and reverse engineering it for myself. And then I thought I would arrive at success and it was like, okay, I'm done. I can put my hat up and put my feet up and and I um that's of course just part of it. That's that's a good start. That's why I say it's for amateurs. It's like the beginning. It's just it's just the beginning of what really ultimately you should be seeking in life, which is fulfillment, you know, and sometimes you find fulfillment through your path to success. But a lot of times we feel like we want to adopt the success model of somebody else mm-hmm. and for ourselves. And that sometimes it's it's not a right fit. It um, It's not a bad thing to, you know go to the right schools and get the right job and meet the right people. And that's all like, you know, we look at success as sort of like on paper, it's she works here and she's had these books and wow, she's successful. But is she happy? Right. Does she, does she wake up wanting to go to work? I've met so many entrepreneurs and millionaires, successful people who are depressed, Mm -hmm. who don't like what they're doing, who had a meltdown, a breakdown, um, got divorced, they had bad relationships, um, you know, and that's because maybe you're not spending the time to figure out what is it actually that makes me happy. That can be a scary question to ask yourself because it may come off, come across as like selfish because maybe what you like to do is not in alignment with what you're actually doing and then you're thinking, you know, I have to start over, mm-hmm. you know, have I made all these bad decisions? Do I have to backtrack? I say no. Nothing in life is an accident. Nothing in life is a mistake. You know, if you made the decision to do something, there was a reason for it and maybe it didn't turn out the way you wanted it and it wasn't everything you thought it would be, but that journey was meaningful in and of itself. Take with take from that what you want and move on. Absolutely. That's it. Absolutely. No one's judging you. If you were to go back and speak to your 22-year-old self and tell her something, what would that wisdom be? Growing up with my parents, I wasn't allowed to date in high school, I almost wasn't allowed to go to prom. Um, talking about love and dating and boys was taboo growing up in the Tarabi household. Like, good girls didn't kiss and tell. Good girls didn't, you know, studied, studied for the math exam. They didn't worry about boys. I was worrying about boys all the time, you know? Like, it's your 16. <laughs> and acing the math exam. And acing the math Boom. exam. And I want to teach my daughter and my son that you can have both. You can go through life... Um, and and that's why I kind of wrote when she makes more is because I sort of feel like you arrive at success and yet, you know, maybe you don't have a partner to share that success with and, and feel loved. And I feel like it's work. And it and I want everyone to know that, you know, love just doesn't happen. Relationships don't just happen. It is work. And sometimes it's hard. And it really requires you to go to a vulnerable, vulnerable place, which I think is my hardest thing. Like get becoming being vulnerable. Mm. I've always had to be put on like the helmet and the shell and go out there and fight and that has gotten me very far and it's hard to admit when you're wrong it's hard to admit it's hard to say i'm sorry i'm i'm really bad at saying i'm sorry sometimes i'm sorry tim <laughs> he's really good at it which is why we're a good match cuz he makes me realize like he, he it's effortless for him to apologize and be vulnerable it's not too late to say sorry barney it's never too late to say sorry i just i don't know what it is it's like Ah, you know, and he knows that I'm sorry, but it's like sometimes saying This relationship it, works great. He's always sorry. I never <laughs> If you can find a man like that, ladies, it is, let me tell you, it's gold. Um, but but people meet us and they're like, we get it, you know, like he really, he re- and I'm so appreciative. I don't appreciate him enough sometimes. Like he makes me 
um, really see my see myself from the outside in sometimes, you know, and go to that vulnerable place. And it's hard for me. At the end of the day, someone said to me, like, on, this is getting morbid, but like on your deathbed, you're not going to be like, I'm so glad I started that workshop. You're going to say, I'm so grateful for the passionate marriage that I had and the relationships that I had, because that's really what gives you life. I think mm-hmm. it sh- that's what should give you life. It's like connecting with people. And, um, you know, I'm trying to be more focused on that. And uh, it's for me, it doesn't come. Sec- it's not instinctive for me. I'll be the first to admit. What's the worst advice you received? The worst advice. The worst advice. <laughs> Change your name. Who told you to do that? A news director. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. They were like, maybe it's just too hard, you know, to be a farnoosh and trying to do it. And this, I was, yeah. And I knew he was, he was half joking, but it's sometimes, you know, whatever. He said it, and I was like, really? Okay, that's, uh, I'll, I'll put that, in, I'll, I'll archive that, and I'll... <laughs> So it was kind of when he said it, you treated it like a joke and then you continued well, to move on. The conversation started like this. I said, you know, when I was growing up, I hated my name. I'll tell you the names I I, I would swap out Farnoosh for. Tina, Christina, Ashley, Nikki. Like, I, I don't know. I would find and these were all women or girls growing up that I admired. Did you actually go by those names? Yes. So because um, we would move. <laughs> So you'd be a new name each time you moved. I remember when we moved to Philadelphia, I was 14 and I was like, and there was a girl, Nikki, growing out. I loved her. She was so fabulous and stylish and cool. And I wanted to basically inherit her existence. And I was like, now is my chance. I'm moving out of town. She'll never know. So I, I was like, mom, dad, can you just Facebook? Yeah. Pre Facebook, put on my school application. I'm Nikki Tarabi. Like okay, God bless my parents. They ran with it, and I got to school, and I'd never been called Nikki before. People were calling me Nikki left and right. I'd never answer. I never responded because I was like, <laughs> I was waiting for someone to call me Farnoosh. It didn't stick. After about a week, I was like, you know what, guys? That's actually like my middle name. Um, I'm gonna go by my primary name now. It's Farnoosh. They're like, okay, weirdo. My gym teacher, Mr. Zimmerman, he was 72. He still called me Nikki until my senior year of high school. (laughs) Yeah, he was a cute man. It was a joke. But so. So um, the news director hears these alternatives. He hears these stories. He's like, Tina, Tina Tarabi. That's great. You should just go with Tina Tarabi. I love the alliteration there. Tina Tarabi. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, But yeah, change your name. And, And so you leave this meeting? Yeah. Thinking I'm not going to change my name or contemplating it? I mean, at this point, it's a little too late, right? You're 26 years old. It's not like you right. can really do that. So, so you've decided no. No. Okay. And I also decide, like, I don't know if I really want to go this path of being an, strictly an anchor. You know, mm-hmm. I thought people were like, oh, you want to be the next Maria Bartiromo? And I'm like, that would be great. But I also feel like along the way, there's going to be a lot of judgment and a lot of you should change your name and you should cut your hair and you should lose five pounds. And I was like, I just want to be me. I just want to. I respect that in some ways, but I also like I'm I have a very thin skin sometimes. Like I don't know if I could take that all that criticism. So let me just like write my books and do my thing and be a producer. And then, of course, um, all that came too. But it kind of came in my way. You know, I got to be on TV and do the things that I wanted to do. But it wasn't like I didn't have to go to some station and have his news director tell me to, you know, cut my hair a certain way. And I did have actually. Here in New York, I filled in. This is what I'm talking about. I was to fill an anchor 
at a station in New York, a big network. And my news director pulled me in and she pulled up the screen of the morning reads and she's like, let's talk about your outfit. I said, what? I said, she's like, what are you wearing? You look like a schoolgirl." And I said, I'm wearing a cardigan and a, like I'm wearing what I see everybody else wearing on camera. I have a nice cute necklace on. She's like, yeah, but you look really young and we need to make you look older. I want you to go and get some. This is 2010. She's like, I want you to go to get some blazers with some shoulder pads. <laughs> I was like, are you serious? The blazers with the shoulder pads. If you went back and looked at my, I, I would go, I spent so much time at Marshall's and TJ Maxx early on in my commercials <laughs> stocking up on those blazers. So I went to Zara to in tears. I'm like, I'm like, I'm 30 years old. I'm being told I look like a 12 year old. I look like a schoolgirl. Literally her words. So I'm in, I'm here. I'm like, do you have a budget? Can you guys do you right. have a wardrobe? Yeah. Like, you, you don't even give me hair and makeup. I'm doing my own hair in the math in the bathroom. Um, so I went to Zara. Like literally, I was in tears. I'm like, I don't even want to be doing this. And I buying these blazers. I burned all of them like not too long ago. <laughs> And so you can't escape it. What I think is, it's actually interesting. You're the second person on No Limits who has been given the bad advice to change your name. Willow Bay was the oh, other person who was told to change her name. Thank goodness she didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the the thing that comes up over and over and over again in this part of No Limits is the the bad advice is to go counter to who you are. It's it's trying to live up to some other person's idea of what you are, what you should be. Um, and when you listen to your own gut and your own instincts around who you are and what you're specifically going after, and by the way, they've served you quite well, Farnoosh, <laughs> uh, that, that's where you like, when you really, really commit to the things that you are, that you care about, that's when like the whole thing just starts clicking across the yeah. board. It takes time to get to that place, though. It does. I think it's scary to be like, this is who I am, and here I'm going to be this person oh, yeah. loud and clear at 25. I mean, no one's giving you any um, respect. You know, they sure. think you're just... Well, and this is where like I was thinking when mm-hmm. you were talking earlier about um, success and it being for amateurs... You know, I have really personally, I I struggle with this because I have these mixed feelings about the building blocks and creating this initial foundation Mm -hmm. where for me and and for a lot of people, I think that's really important creating that foundation. And you don't necessarily know what you love or what you hate. And and you do, in my opinion, it does benefit you to learn that building blocks, those building blocks, to learn that foundation, to be a really good employee and work for somebody, unless you're like out of the gate starting a company and that company is instantaneously successful, it really does benefit you to learn and to grow inside of an organization. Absolutely. And to like pay your dues yeah. and, and do all of those things initially before you start. Like I often give this analogy. People will be sick of hearing it, but I think about it as Picasso. He learned how to paint true to life. He was a magnificent artist from the time he was a kid, and he went through a blue period and a rose period, but the period in his life that he's truly known for is his cubism. And he said this thing, destroy to create, and he couldn't get to that point of cubism. He couldn't start destroying the the foundation of all the things that he learned to create something bigger and better mm-hmm. without knowing all of that stuff early on in his career without like really learning the skills and the hard work like some of this stuff like math it's not you need it's painful pay- but you got to like figure you got to work on it along the way i'm 125,000% agree with everything you just said 
Absolutely. Thanks, Far News. Yeah, you have to, <laughs> like I did. I don't, I don't think I would do anything differently, but I think where we get stuck sometimes is just doing what other people expect of us or just doing what we think is the the tried and true path, um, being afraid to be different, try something new, fail, experiment. At some point, that needs to start happening for you to be able to grow. Uh, you know, I lost, I got laid off in 2009 and I thought, what am I going to do? Everyone was losing their job in 2009. So I didn't feel that, you know, um, I wasn't that much of an outlier, but I also was like, I guess this is my, this is the world telling me I need to go out there and be a freelancer and do do this entrepreneurial thing full time. And it was scary, but I feel like, you know, if I I'm grateful for having been kicked out of the nest a little bit, you know? Just don't go the straight and narrow. Like, you know, and I I made you know, I, I didn't know if I would have enough money to survive. I didn't know how I was going to get life ins- like health insurance. I didn't know if I was going to get even enough jobs. Would anybody know who I was? I wasn't no longer at the street.com, but it's like you f- you f- learn so much about yourself. You have to. It's out of necessity. It's good to go in those places sometimes. It's good to go, you know, get vulnerable and, and to really sometimes just, uh, you know, be forced to challenge yourself. And I, I'm Because you're stronger than you think. You're so much stronger than you think. Yeah. And if anyone tells you you should change your name, you should tell them to get the hell out of the room. <laughs> Farnoosh Tarabi, you're fantastic. Love you. Thank you so much for coming on No Limits. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm such a fan. And I hope I didn't confuse your audience. Uh, (laughs) I'd love to come back and clarify anything. Yes, you're uh, welcome back to clarify anytime. And everybody, listen to Farnoosh's podcast. It's the So Money podcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find it. It is really fantastic. She's got tons of guests. She's top rated in the business. All of the podcasters are going to her and talking to her. And it's a great, great, great podcast. And there are great conversations. And uh, one of my favorites. And it's always in my feed. And I'm always listening to it the minute it comes out. Thanks, Farnoosh. Thank you so much. All right, guys. You know what time it is. It's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week was nominated by No Limits listener Alex Goodson, who happens to be Robin Roberts' producer here at ABC News. She's awesome, and you are going to think the world of our No Limits Entrepreneur this week. Her name is Becky Fawcett, and she is the founder and president of HelpUsAdopt.org. It's a national 501c3 financial grant program. It's based here in New York City, and they have an incredible mission. They help couples or individuals with the cost of adoptions, and they award grants up to $15,000. Anyone who's been through this process of adoption understands how expensive it is. And no one understands it like Becky. She says the most important thing about her is that she's a mom and she's a mom through adoption. And she says that she's nothing without her children, Jake and Brooke. Before founding HelpUsAdopt.org, Becky had a career in advertising, branding, marketing, and PR. She launched her own PR firm in 1999. She likes to solve problems. She likes to build companies, but she realized how lucky she was to be able to afford to adopt twice, and she felt like she had to do something. Her biggest turning point happened the day she asked the question, what happens to families when they can't completely afford the cost of adoption? She says it was life-changing. 
And she says her game-changing decision has been since the launch of HelpUsAdopt.org, they've taken a business approach not just to the build, but in the approach for donors and sponsors. They're making adoption tangible to others who may have no personal connection and are taking the cause beyond the adoption community and changing the way adoption is viewed in the country. If she could go back in time and tell herself one piece of advice, she would say, not everyone will be able to see your vision. What you think is so obvious and important might take others much longer to realize. And in the end, some just won't. Well, Becky, I'll tell you what. I see what you're doing. I applaud it. I think it's incredible. And I really appreciate you for being a part of our No Limits community. And I applaud you and congratulate you for being our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week. And of course, thank you so much, Alex, for the nomination. Reminder, I love hearing from all of you. And if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send me your nomination to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. That is No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Love reading these. Thank you so much to all who send them in. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. It really does help to spread the word. And you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. And join the conversation using the hashtag No Limits. And thanks so much to the team here at ABC who makes this happen week after week. Taylor Dunn, Michelle Bancardo, Annie Osakwe, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Hecht, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones here at ABC Radio. Have a great week, everyone. Take care. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.